Good evening, everyone. We want to welcome you to the June monthly meeting of the Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony. We're very thankful that you have been able uh, to join with us uh, for this meeting, and we do want you to know that we appreciate very much uh, you watching uh, this broadcast. The opening hymn for the service uh, this evening are the words, Our Lord is now rejected, and by the world is owned, by the many still neglected, and by the few enthroned. The words will come up, uh, the words of the hymn on the screen before you. We want to encourage you just wherever you are to to join in the singing uh, of uh, the opening hymn just now.
want to seek the Lord uh, together in prayer. We're conscious of our need. We need the Lord's help and guidance. Uh, We need the Lord's help at all times and in these unusual circumstances as we record the broadcasts and as the broadcast goes forth, uh, we're conscious that we really do need uh, the help of God. So we just want to seek the Lord's uh, face now. Uh, Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we approach your throne. Uh, We thank you for the access that we have. We're very glad that we can come to the throne of grace. We come uh, to thee this evening in our Savior's precious name. We come, Father, to give thanks uh, for your goodness. We want to lift our hearts to thee in praise. We are mindful that every good and perfect gift comes down from above. We recognize uh, the, the many ways that you bless us and provide for us every day. We remember the words of the hymn writer, count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what uh, the Lord has done. And Lord, we do want at the very outset uh, to praise thee, to thank thee, uh, to worship thee uh, for all your goodness to us. We can say of a truth, of a certainty, that your goodness and your mercy have followed us uh, all the days of our life. We want to ask thee to be with us this evening in our broadcast. We want to pray that you'll bless very clearly, uh, very definitely this meeting. We want to thank you, Father, for the facilities, the technology uh, that enables uh, this meeting to take place remotely in this manner. We thank you for that. We thank you, Father, for enabling uh, the testimony to go forth, the ministry of your word, uh, now for well over a year since uh, this pandemic uh, first came about. Lord, we just thank you for your provision. We thank you that uh, many others have been able to join in these services and even hear the word of God and uh, fellowship with us together. And how we want to thank you for that, Father, and we pray that you'll use the broadcast Again, this evening, we think of uh, those that have a part uh, behind the scenes, even in preparing these broadcasts. Uh, We thank you for the the dedication of their knowledge and their skills to the cause of truth and the gospel. We want to pray that you'll bless them, uh, each one. Lord, undertaking every part uh, of the service tonight, we just ask that we'll we'll know the help of God, we'll know the hand of God uh, resting upon the meeting but especially upon uh, the ministry of your word. We ask thee to remember uh, your servant, Mr. Dean. Uh, we do thank you for him. We thank you, Father, for his ministry at these meetings many times in the past, how you've used him, how he's been a channel of blessing, how, Father, through his ministry, the word of God has been opened up and your people have been taught and instructed. And, Lord, we just ask, give your servant help again uh, this evening. We want to pray that he will be the Lord's messenger uh, in the Lord's message. We want to pray, Father, that you'll speak through him. We want to seek thee, especially for a word from God, a word for all our hearts. We, we remember that you said that we have not because we ask not. So very clearly, definitely, even unitedly, Father, we, we want to cry to thee, uh, just that you'll minister uh, to us from, from your word. We ask for a word from God, for they are. Oh, Lord, we think of the wickedness of the days in which we live. We're mindful that your, your word has foretold these days, that the days of Noah, the days of Lot, uh, those wicked days. 
would come again upon the earth, that evil men and seducers would wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. We're not surprised, uh, Father, by events that is taking place and the tide of evil that is coming in. All of these things remind us uh, that the coming of the Lord uh, draweth nigh. And Lord, we ask Thee to enable us to be faithful uh, to Thee. We want to hear those words from the lips of our Savior, well done, uh, Thou good and faithful uh, servant. Give us grace, we ask for every day. We want to pray that You'll bless the ministry of the Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony. Remember our secretary. Remember the uh, members of our committee, uh, all of our trustees. We pray for guidance. We cry for the help of God. We thank you, Father, for providing for the testimony, for maintaining it, and now for over a hundred years. And Lord, we want to ask that the, the work and the witness will go on, and that it will go on from strength to strength. We thank you, Father, even for the international aspect of this ministry, for many across the world uh, that have a, an interest in the literature, have, have a desire to learn more uh, from the prophetic scriptures. And Lord, we just ask thee, uh, to remember uh, the cause of God in these days. Remember the situation even in our own land here, how we need the help of God. We need thee, Father, to come uh, and to save uh, this nation of ours and to turn it again. Turn us, O Lord, and we shall be turned, is the earnest cry uh, of our hearts. So, Father, hear these, our prayers, and we've just asked thee to abide with us. May, may we know and be able to testify to the help of God in every part of this service, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll just take the opportunity at this point in the meeting to make uh, the necessary announcements. Uh, on behalf of uh, the Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony Committee, uh, we earnestly thank uh, all who have joined us uh, for this broadcast. We do appreciate you taking the time uh, to listen to the service uh, online today. We want to assure you of that. Uh, we welcome all of our viewers who are listening from uh, different parts of the country and also different parts of the world. Uh, we're glad that uh, by this means, as the meetings are broadcast, that uh, many others, uh, not just from uh, the London area, the south of England, uh, but from all across the country and uh, even across the world, are able to listen into uh, these broadcasts. So we want to welcome you all warmly, sincerely, and it is our prayer that uh, these broadcasts, as they go forth, uh, will continue to be uh, a blessing uh, to you all. Can I remind you of uh, the latest edition of, of our magazine, uh, Watching and Waiting? This is the edition for uh, July through to September uh, of 2021. Uh, some very interesting and helpful articles uh, that are contained within it. Uh, there's a message uh, by Pastor Alan Toms, uh, the brother uh, of our esteemed secretary. Uh, it's on the coming of the Lord. It's a message that was delivered uh, 41 years ago at the Spring Conference uh, in April of 1980. So we want to commend that uh, to you. There's also an article uh, that we've written on why the true Christian will refuse the mark of uh, the beast. That's a question uh, that is sometimes asked by students of the prophetic scriptures. It's been included, this article has been included as an appendix in the little booklet that was recently published uh, where Europe is heading. Uh, and there's also 
uh, some details uh, about uh, all of the recent publications uh, that the Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony has been able uh, to produce. So just to highlight uh, those matters, there's some other material contained within it. We'd want the, the magazine to receive as wide a circulation as possible, so do sign up to the magazine uh, with our secretary. Uh, whenever you've read uh, your own copy, uh, we want to encourage you to, to forward it or to pass it uh, on uh, to others. Just, we'd like to make you aware of our latest publication. Uh, we're delighted that we have now completed the publication of Dr. Adolf Sapphire's exposition of the book of Hebrews. And we really want to commend uh, this book to you. There's been a lot of work that has been put in uh, to its republication. Uh, we have been working on this project uh, for over two years, and we're, we're very happy uh, that we now have uh, the book uh, completed. It runs into almost a thousand pages. There's a brief biography of Dr. Sapphire at the beginning. Uh, there's some interesting photographs uh, contained within it as well. Uh, by permission of the National Gallery in London, we have reprinted a, a picture of Dr. Sapphire, and also with the permission of the Church of Scotland, uh, we have been able to uh, reprint a, a, a picture uh, of the great disruption uh, that contains uh, Dr. Sapphire uh, as well. So please make this book as widely known as possible. Uh, it's priced at 18 pounds, uh, so it's very good value. As you know, we're not really in the business of wanting to make money. We just want to get out uh, materials, uh, books, expositions of the Scriptures uh, that will be of help uh, to the Lord's people. So do please advertise this book as widely as possible. If you'd like a copy, uh, contact our secretary, Mr. Toms, as soon as possible, and he'll be happy to post uh, the books out to you. Uh, if you live in Northern Ireland, contact myself. Uh, we have a little stock of the books here, and we'll be very happy to get a book to you uh, as quickly as we can. Also, just to make you aware uh, that there is a special offer on this book uh, for all ministers and for all theological students. So if you're interested in a copy uh, of that uh, special uh, arrangement uh, for ministers and students, uh, contact us and we'll be able to, to make uh, the details of that uh, known uh, to you. The next uh, monthly meeting of the Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony uh, will be on Friday the 23rd of July, uh, 2021. Again, the meeting uh, will be broadcast and will commence at 7 o'clock. The subject that evening will be the testimony of Habakkuk. Uh, the speaker will be our brother, Pastor Ian Shaw, uh, from Scotland. Uh, Mr. Shaw has a long association with the Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony. He is one of uh, our trustees. So we ask you to plan to join us uh, for the meeting on the 23rd of July. And again, we ask you, make that uh, meeting known, make it as widely known as possible uh, among your friends and your family. Uh, and do pray that the situation in the country uh, will improve, continue to improve, and settle down so that very soon uh, the meetings will be able to recommence uh, there in the city of London uh, again.
I'd like to mention to you, uh, just briefly, by way of Chairman's remarks, I'd like to highlight uh, a very important date, a significant date, uh, which will take place uh, tomorrow, uh, Saturday the 26th of June. It is the anniversary of the death uh, of Mr. Benjamin uh, Wills uh, Newton. Uh, Mr. Newton died on the 26th of June, uh, 1899. So that will be 122 years ago uh, tomorrow. So I think it's uh, very important, very relevant uh, for us to highlight uh, that anniversary to you. On the 100th anniversary of Mr. Newton's death, the Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony paid to have uh, some repair work uh, done to uh, the headstone uh, where Mr. Newton is buried. He's laid to rest in uh, Tunbridge, Wales, uh, in England. Also at that time, we held a a special meeting uh, in Feltham uh, in London. Uh, Dr. Paisley produced a message uh, on the life of Mr. Newton. Uh, Unfortunately, at that time, Mr. Paisley was unwell, was not able to speak at the meeting himself. Uh, But his son, Kyle, uh, delivered at that meeting uh, the special message that that Dr. Paisley had prepared. That message has been put in uh, to print. Uh, It's available in uh, two two formats. Uh, One has the special cover upon it. Uh, This one is one pound. Uh, The other is just uh, 50 pence. And it gives a very clear outline and a very concise uh, treatment of Mr. Newton's life. And Mr. Paisley also deals very clearly with the awful accusations that were made against uh, Mr. Newton uh, during his lifetime. So I want to encourage you to have a copy of these if you haven't obtained uh, copies uh, before. Take the time uh, to read the story. Familiarize yourself with the long and fruitful life uh, that Mr. Newton lived. He, went, he was in his 92nd year uh, when the Lord called him uh, from this scene of time. The Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony uh, seeks to publish and to promote and to distribute as widely as possible uh, the writings of Mr. Newton among uh, several others. And we, we have quite a number of Mr. Newton's uh, publications uh, available. We have a list of publications that can be sent to you uh, by the Secretary. We'll give you the, the full list of all that is available. Remember as well that you can see uh, the full catalogue uh, of our publications on our website. That's www.sgat.org. So we encourage you to take a little look at the website. Remember that a few years ago, we were able to republish, with the help of Tentmaker, uh, 10 volumes of Mr. Newton's works. And we still have a number of those sets available. We want to encourage you uh, to have a set of them, especially if you're interested uh, in Bible prophecy. And uh, they're priced £75, including postage and package. If you'd like to read a few more details, uh, our secretary can send out the flyer that we have produced uh, with regard to it. I'll tell you the books uh, and so on that are available. Also, we've been able to print uh, Mr. Newton's thoughts on parts of the book of uh, Leviticus. covers uh, the first 13 chapters uh, of the book, highly commended reading. Uh, Mr. Spurgeon said it treats 
of the offerings in a manner deeply spiritual and helpful. He didn't just write on prophetic subjects, although he had a very clear insight. In many regards, he was a prophet in that, in that manner, that regard. But he didn't just write on prophetical subjects. He has written very helpful books on the gospel and on the atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ. A little booklet that we would highlight uh, that is autobiographical uh, in its nature is how B.W. Newton learned a prophetic uh, truth. Just 20 pence. He tells the story himself of how he was first introduced to the prophetic scriptures, how he was encouraged uh, to study them, and how he came to a clear understanding of this vital part of uh, the Word of God. So we commend that to you uh, for your own reading. There's quite a bit of material that will be very helpful, very profitable to you in your study of the Scriptures. Even someone else that you would like to encourage uh, to study the prophetic Scriptures, uh, this little booklet would be very, very helpful uh, to them indeed. The Bible says, the memory of the just is blessed. And it's nice to remember, especially at this uh, particular anniversary in connection with uh, Mr. Newton, it's nice to remember uh, his life, the blessing that it was, and the blessing that his life and ministry continues to be uh, to us, uh, even to this uh, very day. The speaker at the meeting this evening is the Reverend Gordon Dean, the minister of Cross Gar Free Presbyterian Church, Uh, Mr. Dean has spoken at these meetings, these monthly meetings, uh, for many years, and his ministry has always uh, been very profitable to us. Uh, We're looking forward to the word that he will bring to us uh, this evening. Uh, Mr. Dean's subject uh, for the meeting this evening is uh, the testimony of Amos. But just before the Lord's servant comes uh, both to read the Scriptures and also to preach, Uh, the Word of God. Uh, We're going to sing together again. It's the words of the hymn, uh, uh, When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. While we do His good will, He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. So we encourage you to to join in with us now in the singing uh, of this uh, great gospel hymn.
We'd like to thank our brother for the kind words of welcome. We're glad to uh, be with you and share with you again this evening in the Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony. And we're glad to be able to bring God's word uh, this evening. We trust that God will meet with us and bless us as we gather around his word. Tonight, uh, the subject is the testimony of Amos. And we want to deal with that subject. And we're going to just take a couple of scripture readings from the book of Amos. First of all, I want you to turn to chapter 2. And if you get that, then just put your finger in the last chapter of the book of Amos, chapter 9. We're going to read from verse 11 of that chapter. But we're reading from Amos chapter 2 and beginning our reading at verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom into lying. But I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the palaces of Kerioth. And Moab shall die with tumult, with shouting, and with the sound of the trumpet. And I will cut off the judge from the midst thereof, and will slay all the princes thereof with him, saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have despised the law of the Lord, and have not kept his commandments, and their lies caused them to err after the which their fathers have walked. But I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem." Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes that pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor and turn aside the way of the meek. And a man and his father will go into the same maid to profane my holy name. And they lay themselves down upon clothes led to pledge by every altar, and they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. And then, just turning over to the last chapter of the book of Amos, to chapter 9, and we're going to commence a reading there in verse 11. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David, which that is fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as the day in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and of all the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him that soweth seed, and the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them, and I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious and infallible word to our hearts. Let's uh, seek the help of God in the place of prayer, please. 
Our loving and our gracious God, we come to thee tonight. We thank thee for thy precious word. We think of these great men of God who had a testimony for thee in their day and generation. We thank that their testimony was one of holiness and righteousness, one of fearlessness often, in order to make known the word of God. And we pray that thou wouldst come in power and that thou wouldst bless the going forth of thy word just now. We pray for a sense even of thy presence, even as we meet over the internet. Lord, we pray that thou wouldst overrule in all of these circumstances and meet with us here in this place. Do us good and bless us now, we pray of thee, for it is in Jesus' precious name that we'd ask these things. Amen. Amen. Owing to the way that our Bibles are laid out, we could easily miss the impact of Amos that he would have had on his listeners in that day, because he certainly was the first of a new line of prophets which were called to confront Israel and Judah with their sins uh, for several centuries to come. Now, the prophet Amos was not a prophet in the same sense as many of the other prophets. He was not recognized as a prophet among his contemporaries. He had not been to one of the schools of the prophets. He had not been discipled or recognized by another prophet. He was what we might call today a layman. He was an untrained layman at that. And the uh, prophet made no claim to anything other than to be a farmer and a shepherd. And God burdens uh, his people sometimes to come out of secular employment and to announce his message. But not only did he represent the appearance of a new type of ministry, but he arrived out of the blue. He uh, comes here with his unauthorized credentials. And in his own words in chapter 7 and verse 14, he says, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was a herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. He was a southerner from the tribe of Judah, Judah, but he crossed the border into Israel to minister there and to preach a dynamic message that God had given him, a message that was challenging both socially and politically, an uncompromising message that God had given him. But it was more than a challenge to the social and to the political because he was dealing with the spiritual. He was dealing with the uh, a land that had uh, prostrated itself before false gods, a land what, that was in need of a great reformation. And this prophet was captivated by his uh, vision of holiness, the holiness of God, a holiness that demanded judgment upon the sin of the land and upon the sin of the lands uh, round about. Because you'll notice the message of Amos when you read it, that it is not just to Judah or to Israel, Israel most of all, but it is to all of the nations. This is a, a message that widens out to the other nations round about. And implicit in Israel's monotheism 
was to believe that God was the God of all the nations of the world. But Amos brought further implications to that truth, and he opens his words with thundering denunciations of the injustices of the nations round about Israel. And he was really saying in the book here and in his message that God rules, God rules. That is what he was saying, that there is a divine government. And I think that that is something of the theme that that Amos brings out here in this book. And it is that theme that I want to develop tonight as we think about the testimony of Amos. I want us to think about his testimony to the sovereignty and to the rule and reign of God. And as we look at that, I want you to think about the philosophy of divine government. Amos here, his testimony is about the fact that there is the universality of divine government, God's universal sovereignty over all nations. We can see that. And I want you to see the principles with which he rules. One of the standout things that we have is the standards of justice and compassion that Amos brings out in the book. Amos accused the people of Judah of rejecting God's law and statutes in chapter 2 verse 4. And that includes all of the civil regulations found in Exodus chapter 20, in the Leviticus 17 to 26, and in Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 26. And he comes with a concern that the well-being of the people is being affected by the rejection of the laws of God. And it is the well-being of the people that motivates his ministry and the message that he brings. But not only is it to Israel, but as we say it's to the nations around about. He speaks about those nations. He speaks about Israel. They uh, They have rejected the basic qualities that should characterize human society, which are justice and righteousness. And Amos says here in chapter 5 and verse 7, Turn judgment to wormwood and leave off righteousness in the earth. And their behavior was unthinkable and inconceivable. And he uh, points out the violence of Israel, but also the nations round about. In chapters 1 and 2, we see that God judged the Arameans because of their cruelty to their neighbors. He would judge the Philistines because they bought and sold other human beings. The Phoenicians traded in human lives. The Syrians and the Ammonites oppressed the people of God. The Moabites desecrated the Edomite king. And then the Jews, the Judites, despised the Lord's instruction and they uh, regarding the treatment of others. And they had uh, learned the lessons of their neighbors Uh, injustice to others. And then, of course, it comes to the Israelites, and uh, they had oppressed the poor and the needy, even within their own borders. And you can see the way that God uh, shows that they had uh, really violated the terms of the Noahic covenant 
And the principle that lies behind all this is that privilege brings responsibility. God's harshest judgment falls on his own people because they had the privilege of having the word of God. They had the prophets sent amongst them. And because they had privilege, they were going to be judged all the more. And you can see that in the way in the chapter 2 here that we read, that Israel is judged. All people are under divine wrath. All people are answerable to God. But those that have had more light fall under more severe judgment because the sin that they commit is against the knowledge of God. And they know what they should do. And we think of the national uh, privilege determines national responsibility. And we thank God for the light that he has given us in this land. We thank God for the mighty heritage that we have. And God has given us down through the years. But with that privilege and that heritage comes great responsibility. And we're glad of the missionaries that went out from our shores in years gone by. And they brought the light of the gospel to other lands. And they've been the means of lift, lifting up the heads and the hearts and uh, saving the souls of those that were in degradation. But you know, uh, we think of how false religion has come in. And that despising of God is come in. And today, in our land, from our land, there are the multinational corporations spreading their wings uh, abroad and their fundamental desires to make money and to exploit the poor. And greed is the motivating factor. And they try to mitigate it by putting out the messages of uh, LGBT and all of the woke messages of today. But their motive is one of greed and one of materialism. And you know God is watching these things. And God will bring our land into judgment. If he hasn't already. Uh, because of all of these awful things that are taking place. But you see that the message of Amos. Is one that condemns the nations. For exploiting the poor. For exploiting the vulnerable. And for exploiting uh, 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 those that are indeed the widows and so on. And he um, he exposes their wanton violence and all the rest. And you know there are those that would say, well, this is a message that tunes in with the social justice agenda of today. Here is Amos and he's preaching the same message. Well, I want to tell you that God is interested in justice. And God is uh, offended by the oppression of the poor and the vulnerable and the weak in our society. But there's a great difference between what Amos was saying here and what the social justice warriors of today are saying. Because Amos' message was based on the law of God. Because what he was concerned about is that these nations and peoples were going against the law of God. They were taken from the poor and they were stealing. And that's what was wrong. They were committing violence and they were murdering. They were flouting the laws of God. And that's what Amos was concerned about. The modern 
uh, social justice warriors, as they call themselves, are more uh, apt to turn away from the law of God and to um, seek to undermine the law of God rather than to proclaim the law of God. So when some people might claim that Amos was like the modern social justice warriors, it's very far from the truth indeed. But we see the principles with which God reigns and rules. His divine government is one of justice and righteousness. But then look at the patience with which he rules. Because that comes out clearly in the book of Amos as well. He says when he speaks to the nations in chapters 1 and 2, he prefaces what he says every time by saying, for three transgressions and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And he speaks about three transgressions and four. Three and four make seven. And there is the perfect patience of God. And you think of how God has been patient and long-suffering with the nations in their, even our own day and generation, those that exploit the poor, those that have um, gone in uh, 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 headlong against God and against his law, God has been patient. I think of that phrase in the book of Genesis that God spoke to Abram, and he said that the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet full. In other words, God was giving them time until it came to the point where it was full. But God is uh, one who is long-suffering. The cruelty and the oppression and the violence are those that deserve and merit and bring upon men the wrath of God. And yet God, in his mercy and grace, looks down uh, with grace and looks down with uh, patience upon the hearts and minds and upon the nations of this world. You know, God wants the best for humanity. God wants the best for you. And he is long-suffering, not only with the nations, but with you and me. And you know, we rejoice in that today, that there is mercy with the Lord. But I want you to see the philosophy of God's sovereign government. But secondly, I want you to notice the penalty of God's sovereign government. Because while Amos says that God is long-suffering for three transgressions and for four, that perfect patience and forbearance of God, I want you to see that he goes on, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. There comes a time... When God steps in, there comes a time when the patience and the mercy of God comes to an end. And God is long-suffering and merciful. But we can presume upon the long-suffering and mercifulness of God. And we can see that clearly here in the society that acquiesces to and welcomes evil, that evil society, in the end, if it keeps on in that path, is doomed. Now, there comes a time when the judgment is poured out. And I think the, that we have the evidence of that judgment being poured out even in our own land. 
when we see people whose minds are blinded, and when we see immorality being promoted, and when we see people who are obviously given over to a reprobate mind, that is evidence of the judgment, that's divine judgment upon us. And if God does not intervene, then we are in a very serious situation indeed. But notice the way that the tone of the book is set right at the outset. If you look in chapter 1 and verse 2, it says, uh, The Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the habitations of the shepherd shall mourn, and the top of Carmel shall wither. Now, almost the entire book is dedicated to proclaiming God's judgment upon the unrighteous northern kingdom of Israel. And you will see that there is a penalty for sin. There are consequences for turning your back upon God. The first two chapters here deliver a series of oracles against the surrounding nations, climaxing in the denunciation of Israel. Chapters 3 to 6 focus almost exclusively on Israel, on her identifying her guilt and foretelling her exile. And the last three chapters of the book recount a series of five visions which apparently tell us how Amos received his message, but each one promises doom. Now, there are, there are many of them when Amos cries to God, and the doom is held off. But then in chapter 8 and verse 2, we find where there is an irrevocable doom. In chapter 8, verse 2, it says, Then said the Lord unto me, The end is come upon my people Israel. I will not again pass by them any more. So there comes a time, even though Amos could pray and held off, the judgment for some time. Yet at the end, it comes to the point where God says, I will not again pass by anymore. And when a nation comes to the point where God says, I will not pass by anymore, I will not hold off my judgment, surely that is a serious situation. We think of what he says in chapter 4 and verse 2. He says, The Lord has sworn by his holiness that, lo, the day shall come upon you, and he shall take away with hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. One of the um, things about Amos's testimony is that he is the first to testify that the uh, nation of Israel will be carried away by a foreign nation. And we find out that God fulfilled that prophecy in 760 or 750 BC. The Assyrians destroyed Damascus in 732 BC, and much of the territory of Israel was then besieged and carried away into the Assyrian province. A decade later, Assyria completely overran the country, and destroyed the capital city Samaria and deported the population. And although Amos said that judgment would come uh, through the agency of God's enemies or the foreign nations, yet at the same time 
He knows that that judgment comes from God. It's the agency of the foreign nations. It's the agency that would prove to be the Assyrians. But that judgment comes from God. You see, they had turned their back upon God. And they had to suffer the consequences. What about our land? Does that not cause us to think? Does it not cause us to pray, to seek the face of God in behalf of our land? Surely we have to get down on our knees and cry unto God. We see the principles of divine government. And we notice something of the... um, or the philosophy of divine government, the penalty of divine government. But then I want you to notice the perceptiveness of divine government. There is a judgment here, but it's a, a, a judgment that is in accordance with perfect knowledge. God looks down upon these people. And of course, when you looked at Israel in those days, there was an outward Uh, kind of religion. And Amos in the book speaks about this. There was what Jeroboam had set up, Jeroboam the first in Bethel and Dan. And in the book uh, of Amos here, he mentions about Bethel. He speaks about the uh, centers at Gilgal and Beersheba, which were centers of pilgrimage. There were uh, uh, shrines there. Uh, We think about the example of Micah and the Danites in Judges chapter 17 and 18. And it illustrates how in public and in private places there was a veneer of religion. And of course, what Jeroboam set up in a veneer was a worship of Jehovah, even though it was by the means of golden calves. But of course their religion was a sham. It was an idolatry. And Amos focuses on the way that their religion played out in reality. He focuses on the injustices and the violence that they were committing. And he shows them that while they had all the veneer of religion, it wasn't a religion of the heart. They had all the veneer and the outward of being upright and moral and so on. But their actions were betraying the reality of the heart. And you know, God is not interested in play-acting. God is not interested in a half-baked religion. He spoke to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation, and he spoke about how there were so many things about the book, or about the church of of Ephesians, and he spoke about their diligence after false worship and how they were a working church. But he said, nevertheless, I have summoned against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. You know, in the midst of a land where there's a turning away from God and where there is half-hearted religion, God has to step in. And surely that is something that speaks to our own day and generation as well. But there's something else that I want you to notice. I want you to notice that Amos now has something to say about the people of divine government. One of the things about this prophecy in the testimony of Amos is 
as we have said, speaks wider than just to the descendants of Jacob and to the children of Israel. Amos, as we said, saw the Lord as sovereign, not only over the descendants of Jacob, but over all of the lands, over all of the city-states that were round about us, or round about him. And one of the passages of interest to us is the one that we read earlier on there in Amos chapter 9, and particularly verses 11 and 12 of Amos chapter 9. And there we read these words, if you look at it. He says, In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and of all the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. Now, there is mention there, of course, of the heathen. And what are the heathen? Well, they are the heathen that are called by God's name. The uh, remnant of Edom, and of all the heathen, which are called by my name. And you'll notice that it doesn't say that they are the heathen who call upon God's name, but they are the heathen who are called by God's name. Now, that is, that is to do with the covenant. They are under the covenant. They are called by God's name. They are God's covenant people. These heathen, these Gentiles, are in the covenant. And this passage takes, us, it takes on an added significance because... It is one is the passage that or the main passage that is used by the apostle James in Acts chapter fifteen. Now in Acts chapter fifteen we have the Council of Jerusalem or the Senate of Jerusalem or whatever you want to call it. But here the problem that was being dealt with and the apostles and the people of God got together because they had a problem. And the problem was that there were many Gentiles now who were professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were coming into the church. And the Jews that had been converted and were in the church felt, or many of them felt, that the Gentiles should go through the Jewish rituals, that they should go through the Jewish ordinances and circumcision and so on, and they needed to keep the Jewish law. And they had to sort this out, this problem. The more enlightened, like Paul and Barnabas, they strongly rejected and objected to any attempt to impose Jewish customs on the Gentiles. So there was this contentious meeting, as it were, called by the senior leaders in Jerusalem to sort out what was the place of the Gentiles in the church. And at the council, James, the brother of the Lord, spoke last. And that seems to reflect that the church at this time looked to him as the senior spokesman or the moderator here of the Senate or the Presbytery. And he uh, is the most prominent leader. And with James's speech, the debate is settled. And it was James that appealed 
to Amos chapter 9, verses 11 to 12, to settle the matter. Look at uh, chapter, Acts chapter 15. If you turned with me to that portion of Scripture, Acts chapter 15, and if you read chap- verses 14 to 17, this is what James says. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return, and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and that all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Now, it is that text that forms the scriptural basis of the decision of the Synod. Uh, it is Amos' quotation that the rebuilding of David's booth or tabernacle here uh, will be linked here to the ingathering of the Gentiles who are known by God's name. And we find that the argument then was that the Gentiles should be brought in amongst the covenant people of God. Now, there are those that argue then from this portion of Scripture that this would indicate that the church has replaced Israel in God's program. They would say that by quoting from Amos chapter 9 here, James was really saying that the church, the New Testament church, was fulfilling what had happened in Amos chapter 9, or what was spoken of in uh, Amos chapter 9. And they used this as a basis for replacement theology. And because the Gentiles obviously uh, were placed in this relationship, this covenant relationship with God, they are saying, well, the church has replaced Israel in the program of God. And I do want you to notice that the um, argument that James uses here is very powerful because it does persuade the people that the Gentiles here are indeed part of God's covenant people, those that are saved, uh, those that are washed in the precious blood of the Lamb. But I want you to notice the way that this is phrased, that God has uh, visited his people In the portion of Scripture here in Acts chapter 15, in verse 14, he uses the phrase to take out of them a people. Now, that idea of taking out a people has a reflection in the Greek word ecclesia, which means church, but literally means called out ones. God has taken out or called out a church to himself. And God has taken his people out of the nations and out of the world. And we are part of those that are called by God's name. And what a mercy that is. And we can say, as it says here, to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. But the argument of the amillennialist here simply does not do justice. That uh, there is a replacement of Israel by the church. It does not do justice to the words of Amos chapter 9, verse 11 to 13. 
Because in order for them to make the point, they have to spiritualize the land promises and the uh, promises of Israel's national restoration in the passage. And if you have to explain away um, parts of what the plain meaning of the Bible says in order to bolster your view, in my opinion, you are on very shaky ground indeed. But the argument of the amillennialist would seem to be that uh, when the, that the tabernacle of da- when the tabernacle of David is built, that the uh, church and the Gentiles will be brought into the church. What do we say to that? Well, first, as an aside, it is notable that this is not the tabernacle of Moses here. The Hebrew word for that is Mishkan, uh, but the word here is Sukkah, a, a booth, or a shelter. And it is the tabernacle of David that is being restored. But the tabernacle of David is not the church. The tabernacle of David is a metaphorical way of speaking or referring to the house of David. When James was speaking here, about this, the church had not fallen. He speaks about rebuilding the tabernacle of David. And the church had not fallen. It it was in its height at the day that he was speaking. It was not in ruins. But the kingdom had not as yet been restored. It was in a downtrodden state. But I want you to notice how that we need to note the timing of the building of the tabernacle of David. In the book of Acts, if you look in Acts chapter 15, you'll see in the passage that we read there how it uh, speaks of um, after this. He says um, in verse 16, After this I will return. And in Acts chapter 15, James is actually not just thinking of Amos 9, but he's speaking of other scriptures as well. And that sort of comes out in the quotes. But he says, After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is broken down. So there's something that's going to happen after the Gentiles have been called and brought into the church. So at the end of this period, of the Gentiles being brought in, the Lord will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is broken or fallen down. And Amos uh, chapter 9, verse 11, is perhaps more specific because it says, it says, in that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David. And then it goes on to speak about what day he's referring to. It is a day when the... Um, Plowman will overtake the reaper, and so on. It speaks, this is speaking of a future day. This, there is a, that definite future aspect to this, when God will build again the tabernacle of David, when God's son will sit on the throne of David. And after the Lord has completed the program of calling his people for his name, the Gentiles, he says, will return. And there is the political aspect to that, but there's also the religious 
aspect as well. He says, And I will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. But the question now I want to ask is, how did this argument persuade the Jerusalem council that the Gentiles should be brought into the church? If the building of the tabernacle of David and the bringing into the Gentiles is future, these Edomite and these other heathen, the Edomite remnant, if that is future, how did that persuade the uh, apostles and the church that the Gentiles should be brought in at that time? Now, to some, the answer to that is very simple. It is that James was saying that the Gentiles were to be part of the church in the millennium, and therefore why should they not be part of the church now? That they were going to be included in a future time, so why should they not be included now? But I'm not sure that that would have, been, would have stood up as the powerful argument that uh, James obviously made. And what I'm going to suggest to you is that this covenant promise to David, like the covenant promise to Abraham, was fulfilled gradually and partially here. And I would suggest that the promise to build the tabernacle of David was partially fulfilled at the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, when he comes again, he will sit upon the throne. He will fully fulfill all of that. But could there not be a partial fulfillment before that? Now, there is not much mention of the throne of David in the New Testament, actually. In Luke chapter 1, verse 32, it says, And the Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father David. It is absolutely indisputable that the one who will sit upon the throne in Christianity, uh, Orthodox Christianity or Bible-believing Christianity, that everybody has to accept that that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the prophecy was that the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. But when exactly is that given? We're not told there. And there's actually no uh, real direct um, references to the throne of David in the New Testament elsewhere. But in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7, the Lord is described as he that hath the key of David. And that seems to be some reference to that. And all of the superscriptions and the uh, descriptions of Christ in those epistles in the book of Revelation are present. They're not prophetic, they're present. And he has the key of David. And then, when you look at what Peter said on the day of Pentecost, if you turn to Acts chapter 2 and look at verses 29 to uh, 36, it says in that passage of Scripture, he says, um, Ye men, or chapter, uh, verse 29, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, 
that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. There seems to be an association with the resurrection. He, seen this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that a soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see uh, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended unto the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit now thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. And here's the conclusion. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And he speaks about the promise to David that God would raise up of the fruit of his loin one who would sit on his throne. And then he goes on to say that the Lord, having been raised to, uh, from the dead and ascended, is at the Father's right hand, exalted. And he says, And having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which you now see and hear. And if you study it out, you'll find that Jew, uh, uh, James is using, using a Jewish technique here of linking passages by key words. He's quoting from Psalm 132 verse 11 and Psalm 110 verse 1. And the key word that he is linking is the word sit. And the conclusion states the bottom line, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And he's saying that he is the promised Davidic king. Now, please do not misunderstand what I'm saying. What Amos is saying, and what the whole Bible is saying, is that there's a future fulfillment to this when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. That is when the Lord will sit upon the throne of David in the fullest. But can there not be a partial fulfillment to this. And that's what James was basing his argument upon. And that's the powerful argument that he made when he spoke in the council of Jerusalem. But I, I, I'm conscious I'm being a little bit um, controversial there. So we'll move on from that. But we see something here of the people of the divine government. But one more thing I want you to notice, and that is the promise of divine government. Think again of those words in Amos chapter 9 and verses 11 and 12. Amos was a prophet who warned Israel about the consequences of their sin, about the punishment that was coming. But like many of the other prophets, the message that he brought did not end without hope. There was great hope. 
that the day when the Lord comes and when he sits upon his throne fully, there will be a great change in all things. There will be the restoration of David's dynastic throne. The power of that throne will be exercised fully. The Lord will reign over the land. And when the house of David is again intact, Israel will exercise authority over all the nations of the world and will be a source of great blessing to them. Not only will there be a restoration of the throne of David, but there will be the conversion of the nations. It says in verse 12 of Amos 9, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. There will be a great revival, great conversion, great turning to God. My, what a, a day this will be. And even those who have been the former implacable enemies of God will turn in that day. And then there will be something else about that remarkable day. There will be fruitfulness in the land. Look at Amos chapter 9 verse 13. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him that soweth seed, and the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. And what a contrast that is to the images of judgment that Amos had been given through and had been painting throughout the book. There's a reversal of the judgment and the topsoil will be so productive that the plowman will overtake the reaper and there will be planting of the seed almost before the harvest is finished and they will hurry the reapers in order to get the seed into the land. Normally the Israelites plowed their fields in October and they reaped uh, about May. But in the future, the reaping will be still going on in October. Such huge harvests. The winemakers or the traders of grapes will similarly pressurize the farmer to plant more vines. And the grape harvest that took place in August um, and the farmers planted the new vines in November. So here is this harvest that goes on and goes on. And then it says the mountains will be so full of fruitful grapevines and that they will be described here as dropping sweet wine, it says in verse 13. And all the hills shall melt. It'll be like the hills melting with the abundance of wine. So here is the reversing of the curse that God pronounced upon the earth at the fall. And instead of drought and famine, there's abundant harvests. And then there will be also a rebuilding of the cities. Look at verse 14. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make garments, gardens and eat the fruit of them. So this is a day of great blessing when the Savior comes. My, what a change there will be in the hearts of men. What a change there will be even in the landscape. And the pivot of it all is Christ. Christ he is brought before us in the book of Amos. 
In chapter 3, verse 2, he's Israel's shepherd, rescuing the remnant from the lion's mouth. In chapter 7, verse 2 and 5, he is Israel's intercessor, beseeching God for them that um, he might save them in the midst. In chapter 8, verse 10, we find that he is the one to, to whom, for whom Israel will mourn and to whom their hearts will turn. And then in chapter 9, verse 11, we find that he was the one who will bring these blessings in the wake of his return. And the testimony of Amos is that God rules. God rules. God rules in that day. He ruled in that day. God rules today. He looks down upon the nations of this world. He's still watching what is taking place. He still will bring judgment upon those who turn away from him, and particularly the nations that have had his blessing. And God will rule throughout eternity. My, what a mighty God we have. What a God to testify to. And may we, with all our hearts, testify to that God every day of our lives. May God write his word upon our hearts for his name's sake. Let's just bow in a word of prayer. Our loving and our gracious God, we thank thee for the testimony of Amos this evening. We thank thee for the fact that we have a God who rules. We thank thee for these visions of divine government that have been brought before us. And our Father, we pray that thou wouldst continue to write that word upon our hearts. We thank thee that God is one who is over all. Bless us now and be with us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. We do want to thank our brother sincerely for his message. Uh, we do appreciate very much his ministry to us this evening. And we want him to know also that we do appreciate very much his ongoing support uh, of these uh, monthly meetings year by year and also his continued support for uh, the ministry of the, the Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony. Our closing hymn uh, this evening is the words, Stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high his royal banner. It must not suffer uh, loss. How appropriate uh, these words are. So let's sing them uh, together uh, to the Lord's praise.
want just to lift our hearts to the Lord in prayer as we come to the end of our service tonight. We want to thank the Lord for his goodness to us, and we want to pray that he'll be pleased to bless and use his word as it goes forth. So let's just seek the Lord. Father, it is with thankful hearts that we approach thee at the close of our meeting this evening. We thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your presence with us. We thank you, Father, that although we're separated by many miles, you've enabled us to join together in fellowship and together this evening, especially at your feet and around the Word of God. We thank you for the ministry of your servant. Thank you for the help that he has known. Pray that he'll continue to be encouraged in his ministry. Give him many opportunities to proclaim your word. Lord, open up doors for him even to minister uh, on the prophetic uh, scriptures. Bless this message especially that it has gone forth tonight. And Lord, help us even to speak uh, clearly, uh, courageously, unashamedly for thee, even in these days in which we live. Help us to stand up uh, for Jesus as soldiers uh, of the cross. So remember, Father, all that have been part of this meeting. Remember, Father, each one that has listened to the broadcast. Remember every home and family. We pray your blessing upon them. Encourage your people. Strengthen their hands in, in the work of the gospel in these days. And we ask thee now to part us in thy fear and with thy favor. And we pray that the blessing of the triune God, the blessing of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, will be our abiding portion, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.